Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books and Anthropology podcast. This is one of the podcast channels of the New Books Network. I'm Alex Golub, and I'll be your host for the channel today. I'm excited today. We're going to be talking to Wendy Wickwire, who is a professor emerita of history and environmental studies at the University of Victoria. And she's also the author of the book we're going to be talking about today, which is called At the Bridge, James Tate and the Anthropology of Belonging, which is a very, very closely researched book on Tate, uh, an early anthropologist and a potential role model for future anthropologists. So I really like this book because of just how closely researched it is about what an amazing person Tate was and the way that he offers us uh, an image for what an, how we could do an anthropology of belonging. So Wendy, thanks very much for being here. And thank you, Alex. And thank you for that lovely introduction because you've summed up him very nicely. Thank you. Yeah. Now, you know, normally when I ask people, how did you get interested in this book? What is your background? Uh, you know, they have a story of their early training in previous projects, but you say in this book that you started writing it in 1977. Can you tell us a little bit the story of how this book uh, came into being? Well, I say that the seeds were sown in 1977 because uh, that year I ended up um, out in British Columbia, I was part in an MA program at York in Toronto at that time. I had done an undergraduate degree in music, uh, but I was very much pushed into a classical music stream when really growing up in the East Coast of, of Canada, I was also immersed through family connections and community, community connections in folk music and oral music making. Anyway, I ended up out here with a music degree and starting a master's degree and wondering how I could probe that side of things and ended up transcribing in the days before computers, transcribing songs uh, for a group in Victoria who were studying the indigenous languages and they had songs they wanted transcribed. Uh, After transcribing these songs, which came from the southern interior of the province, I had this yearning to meet these singers, like, who were they? I'd heard their voices over and over and over. So they took me on a trip to meet them. I met some phenomenal um, 80 and 90-year-olds who, who were just, I was just struck with how, how special these songs were that they had been singing for years. Nobody had paid much attention to them. Uh, and then came back and started thinking, yes, I, I think I'd really love to do something with these people in their songs, then discovered that this man, James Tate, had recorded over 200 songs in the same area between 1912 and 1920. Now, he had made an earlier collection of songs with Franz Boas in 1897 in this region. So that opened a huge window of opportunity for me. I just had the perfect arrangement for for looking at at the foundation of the music that my uh, singers had sung. So that sent me off on a research uh, project that ended with my dissertation. So I ended up at Wesleyan doing this dissertation on this old stuff, this new stuff, uh, you know, trying to do a comparative thing. It was taking me into their history in a rich, rich way. I was lucky because I discovered this man, James Tate, through Franz Boas, had also done general ethnography in the area. There was a huge monograph on these people and it's where he lived, the Thompson Indians, known today as the Intlakapnik. So I had that kind of a backdrop, lots of stories, lots of history. I was really lucky at Wesleyan too because uh, I was feeling disgruntled with the whole approach to anthropology and ethnomusicology, which I was doing which seems so removed from what the experience that I was having on the ground. So I was really fortunate. I took a course with 
Johannes Fabian, who is running us all through his wonderful work, a book called Time and the Other, How Anthropology Makes Its Object. It was just transformative for me. I loved Fabian. I loved his course. And I think that set me on a track that uh, has kept me going ever since. It was just this wonderful, critical approach. He sort of opened our eyes to, uh, to the problems in this whole anthropological endeavor through looking at it historically. So Franz Boas turned up. I was wondering, like, what to do with Franz Boas. Uh, and and it, it was just great. So anyway, Tate, to make a long story short, kept me on a very long path. The seeds were sown in 1977, but it was only through just, uh, you know, the, the next couple of years getting into his stories, the next couple of years getting into his, his, uh, his correspondence with Boaz and Sapir, until finally about 1990, and I'd had other projects as well, actually. It wasn't my own, the only one. Uh, I ended up with a postdoc in anthropology at, at UBC. And, uh, and Tate's son was sort of wondering, he, was, he had been a logger in his life, and he was really wondering why his father was so sort of unre- underrepresented in the, in the histories that he was looking through. And, and he anyway co-opted me, said, We've got to do something on my father. And he's, you know, I said, sure, that sounds great. I, I've been picking away at him, love him, see that he's overlooked. Uh, yeah, I'm in. But I had no idea even in 1990 how long that was going to take. So that was 1990 and the book has come out this year. It sounds like you've sort of been living with Tate or alongside Tate for decades. I, I, I really have. Because uh, I have, as I say, I started first with the songs. He kept detailed notes on these songs. So for every song I had, and this work was done with Edward Sapir. In, in my book, I talk about there are two streams. Tate's work with Boaz, which is a story of its own, starts in 1894 and continues to the end of Tate's life. And Tate's work with Edward Sapir starts in 1910, 1911, and also continues to the end of his life. And they're sort of two different streams of work. This work on songs was done through Edward Sapir in Ottawa. Tate was living in British Columbia. And all the work that he did for Sapir, he sent to Ottawa. So it's all housed there. Sapir gave him a fairly free hand, very laissez-faire attitude to his fieldwork, which was quite a little different than Boaz, who had an more stronger idea of what he wanted and was more focused. So as a result, these field notes are just stream of conscious, wonderful um, stories of the singers, their names, their, uh, the, the, he spoke the language. So there's tons on, on his conversations with the singers. I mean, it was a treasure trove. So then as I got going on it, it was, it was just led me into these wonderful stories that Tate recorded into his field notes that were everywhere on every topic from from plants to places very much into cartography and place names uh I think I mean it consumed me for years and I was sort of putting off uh there was so much here that I ended up putting off this Shetland side he arrived in British Columbia at age 19 and I sort of thought wow you know he lived here from age 19, arrived in 1884, died in 1922. Really, one's life is sort of formed as an adult. I thought that the childhood and the family connections would be interesting, but that opened up another whole door. And when you talk about time, I would say that the Shetland side of the story took me about 10 years to piece together. I had to really get into British history, and Shetland history is very complex. Uh, that was a thing of its own. I haven't even mentioned once I got going on this story, then I had to deal with Tate's uh, about 15 years of political activism. There was nothing known at the time. You didn't have the internet, people don't realize, back then. So you had to go to archives to collect what he was doing with these chiefs in his community who spoke no English, by the way, but who he knew were so articulate, so intelligent, so fired up, had so much to say about land theft. Uh, 
We don't, mm. in, in Canadian history, treaties were made up to the Rockies. British Columbia, it stopped. Aside from a few little treaties made on Vancouver Island, this colonial project that took place here in British Columbia, according to the chiefs, had taken place on stolen land. There hadn't been any agreements made. So this is what they were fighting. And when Tate arrived, spent 10 years learning their language, married one of their women, around Spence's Bridge in the Southern Interior, 10 years of immersion in the language allowed him to get into their complex history as they understood it, the history of oppression as they understood it. It all been removed from the land, which had been stolen from them. Thank you very much. So he was one of the first who was able to, to listen, understand, and help them with put their arguments forward in the form of petitions, letters, trips to Victoria, the capital of British Columbia, to deal with a very autocratic, authoritarian uh, premier, and then to multiple trips, 1912, 1916, 19, uh, 1920, to Ottawa to, to deal with this issue. They wanted their land claim to be settled in Britain, not in Canada. They felt there was hope through uh, to have it settled in Britain. Uh, so... Mm-hmm. So, so Tate, Tate had um, grown up in Shetland, and he's his family had gone through the process of industrialization, and uh, for that, that was the influx of of capital, mostly from Scottish people or Scots people, and he sort of saw Shetlanders as an oppressed sort of an like a Norwegian or Norse Scandinavian minority. Is that right? So that when he hit BC and he saw what was being done to indigenous people there, he automatically felt like he had seen this story before and he identified with the indigenous people, not not the settlers so much. Is that right? Yeah. And that that's where the Shetland side of the story took me. And that's why it became so... Uh, so exciting. I, I think in terms of research, research it was the most uh, exciting part because he was, I found a cohort that he was raised with in Lerwick, the main town in the 1870s, who were quite fired up as teenagers. They were really seeing Shetland as being colonized. It got me into the whole idea of there's external colonization, which we, we understand very well here, but for them, it was in a form of internal colonization. They felt that they had been colonized. They were they were Norse. They were Danish until the 15th century, and then they were colonized by the Scots. And they had their own language. And Tate's generation was looking back to the 15th century and trying to retrieve that side of their past, changing their names, reading Scandinavian history. They felt there there was even a kind of a and Udell Rights Association, you know, when you see him here aligning with the Indian Rights Association, you know, there's a resonance there. Um, they were, uh, they were, they, they were fired up. Their dialect, which by the 1870s was definitely English, but it was not mainland Scottish English. It was there a very much a mixture, which is still here today, which they still revere today a mixture of that old Norse language that they had up to the 15th century. So Tate, they spoke a form of English, which when you stepped on the mainland, you were immediately demeaned as inferior. It was considered a, such a low form of English. Tate's generation thought, oh, this is a high form of, uh, of speech. And they revered it. They wrote novels and poetry. They, they were really into history. They were into genealogy, tracing their own families back, changing their names. And really into the idea that they had that the Scots, mostly Scots landlords, had colonized uh, Shetland, and that the outer island fisher farmers, who who were totally beholden to these landlords and merchants, um, had been really oppressed. And Tate's family came from one of those outer islands and had been cleared. Mm. Uh, there were two clearances. So I think what you're right when he arrived, and this became. A, very important to me. When he arrived in British Columbia at 19, 
and uh, gravitated immediately to work for an uncle in a trade store, gravitated pretty quickly into the local community. He thought, oh my gosh, it's the same. You know, there's a similar thing here. And I think he identified with it. And he definitely went there to marry an indigenous woman, which he did. Uh, And to align with that community was definitely not something most people did. I noticed that, um, you know, his name is James and all of his children's names are Sigurd and Thor and these very Scandinavian names. So I I definitely got the sense of the, uh, and given the time he was around as well, the sense of a kind of a a romantic revival of trying to get back to the folk and the importance of culture and being in place. But he also had a, he had a class critique as well. I mean, he was a socialist. You say in the book, he's even talks about the 99% and the 1% and the 1%, you know, so there's also a class and a socialism angle to it as well. Yes. Um, and that, uh, is very important when he comes back in 1902 is one visit to Shetland to see family and friends. He discovers that that, that 1870s, early 1880s teenage cohort uh, a, a number of them have come back and they've turned in, they've been in Edinburgh uh, where they've uh, really taken note and joined the the early socialist movement there. And they come back to Shetland and they're really revved up. So when he's there in 1902, you can just feel the sense of fueling tape with that same kind of socialist energy. So, but it was already there. The seeds, as I show in chapter three, they were ready for it. They were open to it. So when he comes back to British Columbia, it's kind of interesting because the BC Socialist Party had just been formed in 1902. So he jumps onto that and definitely stays hooked to that. And uh, and you can see it in his life. That's another thing that I really loved about Tate, that he totally, totally adhered to and wanted to be at the bottom, definitely working class, uh, never any a sense of wanting to be more and fighting what he saw was the, the capitalist class. So um, that was that, I think that, and reject, I liked that he rejected religion uh, for an anthropologist of his era. Um, somebody who, uh, he, he was the census taker in 1901. And it's very telling because he describes his nationality, not as British, but as Norse and his language, not as English, but as Shetlandic. And his religion is not Presbyterian, which he was raised in, but as free thinker. And you can see in this, you know, where where he where his allegiance allegiances lie. And I think that was, you know, that's a big, big part of his persona. So for an anthropologist of that period, and I think this is where he aligns with Boaz, he's he's a clean slate. You know, in chapter six, I try to talk about the the anthropology that was sort of taking the root, you know, we we're going to pro- we hope before we end, we will problematize this notion of amateur, but the amateurs, the Victorian Edwardians uh, who were dabbling in, in ethnography here at that time were just laying on such a trip that it was really nice to see someone like Tate come in and sort of see that they're seeing it through um, through a colonial Christian, everything's being sort of painted through that lens. And he doesn't. So let's talk about that a little bit. I mean, um, uh, on the one hand, Tate kind of seems like Boaz. They both have experiences of being a oppressed minority, but then of emigration, of uh, being uh, non-religious um, but they're very, very different in other ways. You know, Boaz is really uh, uh, a, a creature of the salon. He's uh, an, an academic. He loves to play piano. Um, and Tate really, uh, the way you describe him in the book, he, he's, he's, a, he's a guy who could build his own house, grow his own food, hunt his old meat, um, knows how to be on trails and knows the territory. But then Inside his house, it's crammed with books on Shetland. He's really a, an intellectual and as well as someone who's, who's uh, very, very hands-on and uh, very connected to the place. So how did he get interested in Boaz and, and anthropology? And, and how, how did that happen? 
Well, the line out there, the official line that I that was one of the motivating factors behind this book was that it all happened in 1894 when when Boaz arrived in Spence's Bridge. Now Boaz had had about five trips to British Columbia prior to this. Uh, and, and to be fair to Boaz, and I try to be really fair to Boaz, especially in chapter four, where I'm trying to crack his, you know, just trying to sort of give readers a sense of who he was in a really fair way. Boaz was tasked with this huge job. These were, these were small contracts where he had limited time and limited resources, and he was flying around trying to map all of the indigenous languages and cultures in British Columbia. Like it's, it's a huge job. I can't imagine anybody being tasked with that, even today, having an automobile at your one's disposal. Then he could travel by the CPR, but off the CPR, it was like, we're still dealing with wagon roads. So and CPR is Canada Pacific Railway, is that right? Our, that's our transcontinental railway, which came in in 1886. That opened up the ability to get there with relative ease. So Spence's Bridge, where Tate ended it up, what in 1884 was right on the rail line. So Boaz was doing this work in just east of Spence's Bridge, getting on and off the train and having real difficulty. He was, uh, you know, the more you understand Boaz, you just think he's totally unsuited to this task of anthropology. He kind of fell into it of his own accord, but hanging out with people uh, on the ground having like really easy, fun conversations and really personal, just enjoying people and getting into a community was very hard for him. So he ended up at Spence's Bridge and he'd just been sort of mocked at the previous community, which couldn't have been easy for him. You know, people so apparently a missionary in the previous community had said, look, what are you doing? This looks ridiculous. Right in front of people. He ended up at Spence's Bridge at four o'clock in the morning and and, you know, found a place to stay and a little hotel beside the tracks. Got up the next morning, looked around and thought, oh, no, another depressing day. But somebody said, oh, well, you got to go across the river and check out uh, this this John Murray who had a trade store and a hotel there. He knows a lot about the local Indians. So Boaz got across the river and, and tracked down this man. He said, no, it's not you. Uh, you should be seeing it. It's not me you should be seeing. You should be heading up the mountain behind me to see this guy, Jimmy Tate. He's my nephew. So Tate, you know, Boaz probably discouraged, headed up this mountain. And we know all this because he wrote it all up in his letters, which are published, by the way. Ronald Roner published them in 1969. And that opened a whole window on, on Boaz in the field. Anyway, he heads up and he uh, treks across this high plateau to this little log house in the middle of the field and knocks on the Door. And Tate's not there, but his wife, Antco, Inglethock woman, is there. And this is one of the only places I kind of, you know, I really was careful. I didn't want to make up anything or embellish, but I do take a bit of a liberty here. And imagine it, an hour of having to communicate with Antco, Boaz, who's exhausted. Uh, Antco and apparently another relative while they waited for Boaz. And Boaz says in the letter to his wife, you know, they entertained me for an hour. So I imagined them having this conversation in Chinook jargon, which is, is kind of this trade language you could learn over a couple of days from a little pamphlet. All you can really do is basically say hello and thank you and ask a few questions. Anyway, imagine them having this question. And then Tate turns up and Boaz is obviously blown away. He's there communicating in this intercomic language with Antco and people around him. And it's adjacent to a reserve and and he, Boaz, Tate says, sure, I'll help you. So he runs down the mountain and picks up his measuring tools, heads back up again, and they spend the whole night uh, measuring uh, Antco and all her relatives. And, and <laughs> you can believe it, um, there. And then Bo Tate takes them the next morning. Tate arrives at his hotel early in the morning with an extra horse. And they end up uh, tripping all through, you know, spending the day interviewing and traveling around Boaz was delighted of course and said you know immediately contracted him to write a report they said fine yeah I can do that so the point of your question to get back to it though is people look at that 
if they look at Tate at all, which they don't, he's completely left out of the histories of anthropology. People look at that meeting as being this seminal meeting. You know, this is launched this little, what they sometimes referred to him as a sheep herder, no sheep, by the way, uh, or a squaw man. He turns up in some of these histories. I mean, all these kind of derogatory terms. Uh, and uh, people think it started on that date. In fact, what I try to show in chapter four is Tate was doing unbelievably detailed and important work, ethnographic work for 10 years from 1884 until Boaz met him in 1894. So I systematically looked at what Tate had been doing in terms of documenting people in the community, their their Indian names. So he was really curious about why this depopulation, why this terrible drop in, in population. And so he recorded births and deaths and movement. Um, he... The most exciting find for me, and I included in the book, was just finding buried in Boaz's papers at the New York Museum of Natural History, eighteen a document dated 1893, which was just an incredible body of stories that Tate had recorded by from three elders in, in 80, 90 year olds in that community up in you know Spence's Bridge, named, and they were so alive with detail about the recent past. You know, as we know, if we get into this, one of the issues with Boaz is that Boaz was very keen on documenting the history of these people, but as much as possible removed from the present. So that for him, it was the foundational stories, you know, the oldest stories you could find. With with Tate, you get so much ethnography that's rooted in the present and 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 we have 10 years of that before Boaz arrived. So that's a very important part of my mm -hmm. book, that it didn't start with Boaz. Boaz launched it in a different way, in a new way. You know, gave Tate a niche that otherwise he wouldn't have had. Gave him an employment opportunity that he could sort of tag on to what he was doing. Gave him an outlet to do what he thought he was should be doing, which is telling the outside world the story of these people, which was, I think, uh, always in Tate's writings, a politicized story. I really like that. There is always an underlying um, talking back, talking back to his own people, uh, a decolonizing story that you don't ever get in 1900, as far as I can see. So on the one hand, yeah, so I will say one thing about that angle of Tate's life. If people get a chance to take a look at the book, Right over the front, at the very top of the cover, there's the words, a must read, a blurb from Audra Simpson, author of Mohawk Interruptus. So that's a huge endorsement right there in terms of how you're positioning Tate and trying to um, uh, get an audience that's not just people who are historians who are interested in BC, but are interested in a lot of these broader issues of the relationship of anthropology and to politics to the uh, way in which we make choices when we describe the people that we're studying? Do we present them as sort of with all of the present scraped off of them to get back to the so-called original story? Or are we seeing a version of them in in the way that they actually live their life in the present? And, and you really see Tate as, I guess, as an anthropologist who does that. Although, you know, I guess previous authors have said, Tate is a research assistant or an informant. He's not an anthropologist. You know, he's not the scholar. He's the helper because he had no degree in anthropology. I don't even think he went to college. Nope. So, yeah. No. And so to me, that that's one of the main correctives that I hope, uh, the takeaways from this book that I hope people will see you know, what happens when some, you know, the first chapter is like, who gets into the pantheon of heroes in in the anthropological world or the, the indigenous uh, writings world? And that was really interesting to me to look at who we know across Canada in the public world, the, the sort of general writing world. And well, at first in the anthropological world, as 
his name doesn't exist in the histories. You can't find him in the indices of books. Regna Darnell's wonderful work on the history of anthropology, you rarely, rarely find him, or you do find him cast as, uh, you know, incorrectly. Uh, he's just not there. So it gave me a really, uh, you know, important hook for for this book. And it was very nice. Of I really appreciate that Audra uh, wrote a very nice endorsement of the book. That means a lot. And I've just been touring with the book in the interior communities, through the interior communities. And it's just so heartening and wonderful for me to see their response to the book because uh, I went to seven communities a week and a half ago. Six communities had had hosted events for me and the book, and they were buying the book. People were buying like two or three copies, and 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 speaking so positively about the importance of Tate to to them. So he is, and he is known there. He's never been kind of written up in this way for them. They've been using his work uh, in, in bits and pieces, but I think for them seeing the whole story and they are reading it. One woman told me in Lytton, she's read it twice, which is really, um, really means so much to me, but I think mm. they're seeing, and I'm hoping like what I want to see, you now have the roadmap in a way. I want all my citations. There's lots of pages of those to help guide them. So if they're looking for a document, they can go to the citation, find it and find out it, where in the many uh, institutions, the American Philosophical Society, the American Museum of Natural History, Boston, Peabody, Peabody Museum, Ottawa, Canadian Museum, his papers are everywhere. So they can find them with ease. There needs to be work now, and it is being done, and I'm really happy to say it, it is being done by Inflacatma community members and others, probably, but Angie Bain of of one of those bands uh, is working there. She's part of a book project and they're really working closely with the collect the collections under Tate's name that are, and repatriating those back to the community. That's so exciting. The maps Tate did piles of work on maps, which are all to me, that's, that's his political motivation. You know, he was overwriting the colonial maps with the indigenous maps, 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 place names, you open up every monograph and there are place names littered with place names. That was really important to him to actually put these people on primary, you know, they have a primary presence on the map where they belong. And that becomes very much a part of the, the politics. So yeah. I, and the people, these projects are so good too, because Boaz really, uh, looked for the general picture in his editing of Tate's work on the Nflakavik. Eleven major monographs published under the auspices of Boaz, mostly the American Museum of Natural History, but also the Smithsonian. And for Boaz, it was the general picture, the common denominator picture. He wanted, you know, Tate littered them with the first, the first report with lots of Tlacatmic names and was told by Boaz, no, no, we don't want these names. So they became um, more general. They're filled with information. There's lots that's great about them. But what's really great are the field notes from which these monographs were, came. So, so can, I, can I ask you something about that, though? I mean, it seems like the book has two halves. One half is very, very oriented to the community and to the place. And I can, when I read it, I see you putting in the information for the people that it's about. It's, it really has this quality that a lot of great ethnography has that it's, but it's very hard to get editors to keep in, which is like in 1914, the trade store was torn down and that's where the bank is now. And then it was rebuilt on the other side of the street where the filling station is now. Yeah. You know, it it, yeah, yeah. it has it has this sense of like people who live there want to know precisely where the old schoolhouse used to be and whose uncle and whose auntie was there so it's very located and it's it's very emplaced. Well, that that's, then, that seemed important to me. That seemed really important in my trip through the interior. It was so important. For people, they were having me sign their pages on their grandmothers, where I mentioned the grandmothers. I mean, that seemed really important wow. to me. 
Yeah. 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 And um, on then on the other side, because as someone who is not from Canada or very familiar with this area at all, there's there's the if that was the form, or the, if that was a substance, then there's the kind of form. This is part of a a kind of history or a kind of anthropology, which you do not have to be from Canada to do. That's very engaging with local communities, but also you know is exemplary for other people who want to do this kind of work. Well, I'm really happy to hear you say that. And I notice in your own work and your own writing, I, it resonates with me too, because you're asking the big question in your own work about who are we doing this work for? You know, it, anthropology and anthropologists, and I really find this, uh, just looking at around, looking around at what I wanted to be my model, how do we write to communicate to a broad audience? How, of course, I want this book to be read by anthropologists, and I would be just so gratified to think that American anthropologists south of the border, did some work south of the border in Washington State, Idaho, Flathead, uh, Flathead in Montana. I, I want to think that it, it has anthropological substance, but I also want it to speak to a broader audience. I want, I worked really hard, and maybe one of the reasons this took so long is we are, as academics, we are really immersed in academic writing. We write to our colleagues, we write for academic journals. But at this stage of my life, this one had percolated for so long. The people in those communities today mean so much to me. Their grandparents meant so much to me. They gave so much to me too. Uh, one of them, John Hogan, who's a little bit younger than I am, said, begged me, said, please make it readable. And I almost had that sort of stuck on my screen as I was reading it. And over and over and over, I tried to craft each chapter as a readable chapter and start it with something that might keep people going, end it with something that might help people, keep, make people jump to the next chapter. And then, you know, worked hard to sort of do in the next chapter. So when I actually get people reading, as you did, to the very end, and and having a takeaway, it, it really sort of means a lot. But mostly, if, I mean, I am getting great feedback from Indigenous readers. That just means so much to me. And it does mean something to think that maybe we can write, and, and I've published with an academic press, you know, can we write something that also we have, that is not theory laden, but carries a theoretical message that we've got our theory in. I mean, this is about settler colonialism writ large. But if we top load it with, with our, our disciplinary jargon, we will lose the general leader. And in Lytton, it was really poignant to me that one of my friends, a young woman, said to me, at the end of my presentation, she said, I really want to know what white people think of this because they were embracing it. Like you're telling our story. Thank you. But what are white people going to think of this? And I thought, yes, I want, I want their community to read it, but I also want white people to read it. I, I, but I also want my colleagues to read it. How do we do that in our writing? And I really like that in your own writing, You've made that appeal very strongly that in our students and then our communities out there and that our people that we're spending time with and that mean something to us have to be part of our writing projects. I don't think we can write above them or around them or behind them. I think that we have to project toward them whether or not I've succeeded in doing that while keeping the interest of my academic colleagues that those reviews aren't in yet i mean i guess i got one from ubc but uh, a, wonder, <laughs> a wonderful one from charles menzies do you know charles menzies in the anthropology at the name sounds familiar to me oh, yeah, but he's I, a, oh he's in anthropology at ubc and he just wrote a, a review and i was really happy because he's he's an indigenous scholar at ubc and his review meant a he, lot yeah, you know, I mean, it seems to me like the book is not theoretical in the sense of you present a theory or an account of the world uh, in 
in a, in a, in a kind of specialist that requires specialist knowledge that allows us to analyze things that we couldn't analyze without it. I mean, the book has a theory of what it is to do scholarship, and then the book enacts that theory and does it. So I think people who read it, 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 it has that curse that all great anthropology has that I mentioned, or history that I mentioned getting back to the two sides of the book, which is that to really understand what's going on sort of with the choices you've made, the sort of the way that you've embodied or done the theory, you any reader is also going to have to learn a lot about the place. And I think there's a lot of people today, they do not want to learn about 18th century Shetland. They just want to learn what the new name is and the new theory is. And unfortunately, you have to take the deep dive and really learn about people's places and their histories if you want to come out on the other end and say, oh, I see what she's doing. I I understand why she's made the choices that she's making. And I think that's a, you know, that works really well when you're writing for the local communities. You said you wanted to write for a broader audience, but I, I think a lot of people today, when they think about a broader audience, they think um, a blog post, Twitter, uh, um, you know, popular material that professors read. So the audience is still professors, but just an op-ed and not an academic article. And as a longtime blogger, I'm as guilty of that as everyone else. But but when you, I just want to highlight that for, for people who have not had a chance to read the book, when you talk about writing for a broader audience, it's not the same people in a different genre. This book is really for the, it, this book is for the people whose lives were touched by Tate and who continue to be influenced by him which is very different than um, trying to write something in Sapiens, the, the blog of Wintergren or something like that. No, I, I, I'm older. I'm old school. Uh, I was raised on books, pre-internet. Uh, I still value books. I may be a relic of the past. It, although, as they, as they say, it was very exciting to see people walk off with four copies of my book. Um, up in the interior. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see, you know, how young people today approach a book that looks as dense as this. I hope my storytelling style, if they decide to launch in, I hope that the style of writing might keep them keep them going. We'll have to see. And you know, it also comes from people asking me too over the years, about about colonial history in our province. You know, what can I read? The general, mm, yeah. the general reader. And what about this Indigenous history? You know, where, you know, where does it really, where can I find something good? And it's funny because I've taught, and you know, those are my areas I taught, BC history, Indigenous history, oral history, history of anthropology. And I, I would often be stopped short, and I'd think, gosh, you know it. I can't really think of anything offhand that you could sort of pick up and get a good picture in a fairly nice, neat package. I like to think that in my chapter two, for example, which I struggled over, which is my BC history chapter, it's it's really a sense of, um, for Canadians, this is an important chapter. It really does give people, I hope, a readable package about what if, and, and as I said to the indigenous peoples in my talks last week one that takes its leads the indigenous history is in the foreground it's not just you know okay here's what happened and you here's how the indigenous people fit in it's here's the indigenous story and here's how here's how we all here's how it all happened so I don't know I really it's going to be interesting to see I mean uh it, I am older I I have to say you know, one of the questions I thought about as I was thinking about this podcast and things you might ask me is like, why it took so long? Why one book? And one of my colleagues made me feel so happy. Actually, it was Elizabeth Fiber who gave, who made one of the, you know, the little testimonials. And she said when she read, you know, the first part, she said, it's like a really well-aged bottle of wine. I mean, it's it's been there for a long time and it's really taken a long time. And somehow it really resonated with me. Even one of the things I just loved about Charles King's new book, Gods of the Upper Air, was was her his you know learning more about 
Ella Deloria and Zora Neale Hurston and making links to Tate and their appeals to Boaz. You know, you can't just zip in and out and expect to get something from these people. You have, and Tate told that to Boaz at one stage in one of his early field trips. He said, you know, you might enjoy working with these people. I just had a great time with them, with the Statlin people, which Tate Boaz called the Lillouette, or called the Lillouette. He said, you'd really enjoy. They're wonderful. He said, just the most hospitable, wonderful people I could imagine meeting. And then he said, but if you do this, you'll have to take time. They take time. You can't just... And by the way, he had just come off this amazing seven-week trip with Boaz that just completely finished Boaz. In 1897, Boaz came back to Spence's Bridge with huge funding, Jessup Expedition funding for field work. And so he started in Spence's Bridge. Guess why? He had someone there setting up everything for him. He came with Livingston Ferrand, who didn't had never done field work. He came with Harlan Smith, who'd done a little, you know, it was had never done any work in the region. Boaz didn't think he he was capable of that much. So anyway, there he is, the three of them. They'd have this incredible 10 days of nonstop work, recording songs, just doing everything you can imagine for a week and a half. And then Boaz is so excited because they're gonna take off on. By then, Tate is, is starting his guiding life. He's a hunting guide. He has horses and a whole outfit for guiding. So Boaz has booked him in to take Livingston Farron. He sends the Harlan Smith off to do archaeology elsewhere. Livingston Farron and Boaz are heading off on a seven-week trip on horseback all through, if you know British Columbia, it's like through these old, old trails right up into central British Columbia and over to the coast. Boaz is super excited. He loves the first day. This is all available for everybody to read in his letters published by Rohner. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, two days in, it's like raining and it's cold and it's wet and it's it, taking out. It's June. The indigenous folks are all off everywhere. They're not on the trail. And so really by about two weeks into the trip, he said, I've had it. I just don't want to do this ever. You know, by the end of the trip, I don't want to do this ever again. Um, so that's when he really ropes Tate in and Tate spends from then until he dies in 1922, working relentlessly nonstop on just everything under the sun for Boaz and later on for Sapir. So the huge pile of, of field notes related to that work. So, but, but Boaz actually doesn't come back to British, he's from 1900 to 1920. I think it's telling that Boaz actually stays in New York City, you know, once he solidifies his, his job at the American Museum of Natural History and then his, his academic job at Columbia, he's pretty, you know, he's pretty fixed on staying there. And he has Tate sending his notes by mail. What a perfect send your question returned by mail. So the correspondence is rich, but also George Hunt on the coast. Now, George Hunt is Clinkett with a, with the Hudson Bay Company English father. So George Hunt is a really interesting guy, and more and more is coming forward on Hunt, thank goodness. But those two men, one on the coast and one on the tier, basically do so much of Tate's work for so many years, week after week after week after week. That point is coming out now in spades with Hunt, but it has not yet bubbled or percolated to the to the surface for Tate. So my goal with this book is just to look at, you know, just the importance of Tate, not only for the Boazian uh, story, but also for the foundation of American anthropology story. How many people do we have like this? Why is he completely neglected? Why, you know, I, I don't think, do you, do we have many people like this who who really dedicated their lives and really didn't do what so many did. There's no ego in his work. He's not trying to speak for, he's definitely trying to propel their voices, which are all in their own languages forward. The political story, the political speeches, activism, his method of doing that 400 chiefs gathered at Spence's bridge to, to hammer out a two page document all speaking different languages with Tate, doing that helped 
to bring that document forward so they could send it off. I mean, I his political anthropology, which well, didn't even exist at that time, is one of his major contributions. Well, I, I mean, I think in terms of how he, the reason that he's not remembered is he didn't train graduate students who would then write books about how he ought to be remembered. I mean, yeah. so much of the politics of anthropology is just, if you train enough students, you're part of the history of anthropology. If you don't, you're not. You know, I mean, it's, yeah. it's, it's it speaks to this issue. I mean, we're now like 50 minutes into the interview. I probably should have front-loaded this a little bit. But one of the key topics of the book is this concept of an anthropology of belonging, and an anthropology which is deeply connected to the place where you're doing it. And it, it's not necessarily a, a metropolitan anthropology like Boaz practice, where there's a strong break between home and the field. Uh, unless, of course, maybe you're doing an ethnography of New York or something, which is fine. <laughs> but um, but that's really what Tate was doing. He was He was doing anthropology in the sense that he was doing really high quality uh, documentation, but he was doing it in the service of a, a, a local project. And then he kind of was also, I mean, he basically made the money off of Boaz to fund his, his travels to help the indigenous people. Right. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like he was kind of, that was how it was working. It wasn't the other way around. No, definitely not. And they were paying him uh, at some point too. So yeah, and he was in debt. I mean, he was in debt at the end because of loans to the allied tribes, one of the the political organizations. So yeah, I and looking for titles, it was really a, a tough call. Bridge obviously res, has huge resonance here because it is Spencer's Bridge. They still call the bridge right where he lived, and right where he lived was important. Um, but belonging really was important to me too because. It really, for him, it was an anthropology growing out of the place. And I think this had such resonance with his feelings about Shetland, too. And I found it kind of interesting. There's an anthropologist, Anthony Cohen, who spent... Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I was going to ask you, he did work up there, yeah. He did. And, you know, one of the things he's known for in anthropological circles is extended time spent in his field site. 1973 to 1990, uh, extensive time in a little one of those little islands. Um, it's an island archipelago, and it was the island of Wallsey. And and he he took a long time there. And and one of the concepts that he comes out with in one of the titles of one of a collection that he edited is belonging. He just got this sense of of belonging. It's definitely something you feel in in Shetland because it's so isolated and the families are so interconnected. And Tate never lost that sense of connection and belonging and feeling for for Shetland. And I think that when he arrives at nineteen and in Spencer's Bridge, unlike most of the settler community, he gravitates immediately, and that probably gets that sense. And so, in all of his work, you feel. It's an assertion of that feeling of, of of belonging to that place, to each other, and and so everything—the plants, the place names—are all that connection. And so belonging to me had really a a, a nice resonance uh, for the story of Tate. Anthropology, maybe, to, to sort of give a sense that there is something behind this that is also connected to, to anthropology. I don't know. Titles are hard, as you probably know. but um. Well, I think, you know, it's, it's easy when you have uh, a metropolitan anthropologist to do field work somewhere and then come back and write a, a volume that contributes to scholarly discourse, which I think is important. And it's also easy to have uh, a local person, whether indigenous or not, do a kind of work that's very useful for local people, maybe that has some kind of concrete policy commitment. But, you know, one of the things about Tate is that he was a settler. He, you know, it would have been easy to just say, okay, indigenous anthropologists are always in place. Settlers are always not in place. But of course, it's always more complicated than that. You know, you mentioned George Hunt, 
that guy had all kinds of complex upbringings. He was always more than just an indigenous anthropologist. And, and Tate too is always a little bit more than just a settler or more than someone who had been, and people cannot see the scare quotes I'm putting up here, quote, adopted quote yeah. by Native Americans. So that concept of belonging is interesting because it's, it's tied to place, but it's not about primordialism or blood or race or any of these other concepts, which have been such double-edged swords for indigenous people. Yeah, no, I think that's right. And, you know, one of the things that is really, um, really wonderful is, and you problematize this, and I think it relates to Tate, is that the anthropology is so much a part of the communities now. They're doing their own. They've got good people there, definitely doing their own, and and Tate's providing them so much. That's what we're going to be talking about in our session, uh, the American Anthropological Meeting session. And, um, yeah. I would love you to do just a couple thousand words on what the anthropology of belonging is, because I will tell you, I was old school as well. And I thought, oh, anthropology of belonging, that looks pretty good. So I went to the index and found anthropology belonging of, and it says definition on page 27 and 28. And I thought, oh, I can just skip all this stuff about UBC and go there. Yeah. And um, there... There isn't a definition on page 27 or 28. I mean, you talk about it, but uh, there's there was no thing I could underline that said the no. anthropology of belonging officially is. No, that's so interesting. I, there is none. Yeah. I actually, and that's why you have to look carefully at my title because I have an anthropology of belonging. It's not the anthropology. I actually, mm. I am finding people, I found, I found people are sort of, it turns up if you Google it. Um, and it certainly turns up in um, in people's work, I think it's if you look at the history of anthropology, issues of belonging and identity have probably been the most important. Uh, if ever, if anybody's pursu- if anthropologists as a whole are pursuing anything, they're pers- what is the nature of identity, uh, belonging in relation to materiality, for example, and place in the world? I think it's been one of the big questions of anthropology. But I wanted people to definitely take away from my book that is an anthropology of belonging. I'm not asserting that there is any there is anything, you know, concrete out there that that uh, that that can be uh, attached to this. It's it's Tate, and it's pursuing something which we could call an anthropology of belonging. Well, there's two sort of projects of belonging in the book. There's Tate's and there's yours. I mean, you guys are both trying to live it when you do it, which I really liked about the book. And 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 they're both, de- I mean, you know, I imagine you're also a settler, you know, so like I am. So um, it's about you kind of finding your way. A lot of the book is your personal journey and um, it's Tate's as well. And, uh, you know, you mentioned um, Anthony Cohen. He has this book on political anthropology where he says, Communities are not united because they have shared understanding. They're united because they have key symbols that they argue about. Yeah. So, you know, even for him, it's not about everyone agrees. There's this kind of very simple, unproblematic solidarity. Everyone shares everything. It's it's uh, much more complicated and much more human. I think that's where that aged wine feeling kind of comes in the book that you see. You see the complexities uh, in, and it's not a a very straightforward message. It's a very detailed and nuanced one. I, I, I like that about the book. Oh, well, thank you. And uh, yeah. And if anything that is important to me is that Tate did try to capture the nuance. He tried to sort of place these people in their past, which was important, but also in their present. And like Ella Deloria, I love that he, she wrote, I was constantly writing to us to say, you know, you can't find a foundational story. People tell stories differently. And I tried to make that point in the last chapter, which was a new thing that he was offering, just the just the nuance and the variation and the difference of opinion that seemed to be important, where Boaz was trying to sort of get it down to, you know, they have there has to be a foundational story that everybody embraces and Tate didn't didn't accept that. Well, thanks a lot for the book. Uh, I, I, again, I don't want to take up too much of your time, so I do want to let you go. 
But can you tell me now that you've finished this uh, huge thing that's a huge part of your life, what are you thinking about doing next? Well, I guess what I'm thinking about is is how do I uh, take all of this stuff that I've been collecting for so long and it fills up all my shelves, you know, all my drawers, uh, notes and the knowledge that I've picked up and the contacts that I've made throughout museums and trying to sort of facilitate the next move, which is to help these people who are doing research in their communities make contact with the American Museum of Natural History or to, to, to encourage them to go there, to help them with what I've got, to help them digitize, to help them to get the materials that they want. Uh, that's a big part of it. Um, as far as the next project, I guess I'm still in the aftermath of, of this. There could be another book on tape. Uh, I mean, I, uh, there's so much that I didn't cover, couldn't cover between two covers. So, uh, yeah, there's, there's more to be written. And hopefully working with people to help them do the next phases, which is to get more of it out. Well, that's definitely a worthwhile project. So thanks very much for the book. And um, thank you in advance for that next couple of stuff. Thanks for having uh, us on the show today. Thank you.